session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is Subtract by Lady or Lady Klotz. The Untapped Science of Less, Subtract. Caught my eye and looked at it a little bit more. It seems interesting and looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week. Subtract by Lady Klotz. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is A Sense of Self by Veronica O'Keene. A Sense of Self, Memory, the Brain, and Who We Are. And uh, actually, if you are in, I think, the UK, the book might be called The Rag and Bone Shop. Actually, it's a different title, so when I was looking it up, I found that out. Um, but here in the States, it's called A Sense of Self by Veronica O'Keen. Very, very fascinating book. I really enjoyed it. Dr. O'Keen is a professor of psychiatry and a consultant psychiatrist at Trinity College, Dublin. And in the book, she shares from the neuroscience research, but also draws from her, I think, 35 plus years of seeing patients in psychiatry, and also actually shares from literature and different writers, poets, and some of their thoughts on themes that come up throughout the book. So it made it a quite fascinating read, interesting, uh, also very human, although she's a psychiatrist and describes and discusses some harrowing cases that are very intense and extreme. You you feel a very human type of um, connection or relationship that she seems to have with her patients, which I appreciated. So just the title itself really drew me a sense of self and looking at memory when discussing a sense of self. And to my understanding or in my estimation, when we think of a sense of self, I think of who I am it has to be based in memory. Or if we put it the other way around, without memory, I cannot really have a sense of self, of who I am. It's in a way composed of my memories. That's how I, I even can, can understand myself. So to me, that really stood out and makes a lot of sense. And that theme does come up in the book in various ways, but just something to think about. That if you really consider it, how could you have a sense of yourself if you did not have memory. And as she also uh, explains in the book in discussing some of her patients, although we take it for granted, this sense of self that we have, not everyone has a sense of self. And some people with 
severe mental illnesses such as schizophrenia and some people with schizophrenia might not even feel like they are themselves or have a sense of who they are. So as often is the case, many things that we take for granted or we don't notice become more apparent or we can feel uh, grateful when we recognize that not everyone has that experience that we didn't even realize was something we could not have uh, until we see some people who might not actually have that benefit of that experience. So the first part of the book gets into some of the neuroscience of memory and understanding who we are um, and how memories are made. I like that she talked about the brain-mind divide which I find a little bit complex, or it's made complex when it maybe is not that complex, when people think of the mind as something different from the brain. One way of looking at it is the, the mind is the experience of having a brain. But often we have these abstract or mythical, religious, spiritual explanations for things, not necessarily because they are that, but it often means we just don't understand it yet. So for example, a feeling of love is an incredible feeling and it can make you feel this amazing thing that it makes us think it's something spiritual or has to be from God. And this is not saying it can't be from God in some other way, if you want to have, you have that religious belief, but that it could be created in the brain, that experience. And when we understand the brain more as neuroscience and related fields has uncovered in recent decades, we can see how this develops in the brain or how it is expressed in the brain. Now, this is what creates the issues when we're trying to understand consciousness that we have to think of what is the problem or what are we trying to explain. So here we have this problem of what does it mean to experience something and how do you define it? But as far as seeing it in the brain, we can understand it. It doesn't have to be something that happens outside of the brain. So some philosophers and people throughout history and even still hold this notion that there is a brain, but there's parts of human experience, maybe you call it the soul or you call it other things that have to be happening outside of the brain because we can't explain it. But often I think it's this that we don't know yet, or at that time we didn't know, but as we uh, advance in science, we can understand these things better. And at the same time, to me, this doesn't take away from the experiences. Some people think that if you do this kind of a reductive um, exploration, let's say, as I said, love, let's say maternal love, that it takes away something from that. And I don't think that has to be the case. Even actually yesterday I saw my cousin's baby, Colette, who is incredibly cute. And I was actually, because I was reading this book and getting close to the end of it and looking at her, I was thinking, you know, there's probably some kind of an explanation of why she is so cute to me, why she brings these feelings in me. You know, you know, we have parental type of instincts. We have instincts or uh, desires to take care of things that are smaller or that look helpless. And there's certain proportions, having a larger head and larger eyes that bring up this feeling of being younger and needing help more. So there's more and there's uh, many more that I don't know and many more maybe we still don't know. But even in knowing that, that this was happening in my brain and even some parts of evolution could help explain it, to me didn't take away from 
my experience of enjoying her uh, and how cute she was and how she made me feel in that way of interacting with her or just seeing her. So to me, it doesn't actually have to take away from it the more we understand these things. I think for some people, the sense that, well, it's no longer mystical because if you feel like it's something spiritual, whatever that means to you, or something bigger than humans or bigger than biology, that that's what makes it special. And now if we bring it down to just experience or bring it down to biological explanations, it takes away from it. To me, I don't actually experience it in that way. I think when we understand that you're in an intellectual space and that takes away from the experience, if every time you hugged your loved one, all you do is describe the you know oxytocin and different neurotransmitters being released, that's a way of intellectualizing and escaping the experience in that moment. But understanding these things, I think, is actually really good and wonderful. But then when you experience them, yes, I think it can be important to stay in that experience and enjoy you know the beauty of whatever it is you experience. So she does touch on that very briefly, definitely more briefly than I uh, touched on it right now. Um, and then also gets into these different aspects of memory, the parts of the brain that are very important. For example, the hippocampus, which helps integrate sensory memory. Um, she also talks, and even biographical memory in a way, uh, the senses and how we experience them, which sensing she puts at very much the center of memory in the sense that, uh, no pun intended, that what we're doing when we have memory of anything is it's really, a, if you want to call it a snapshot, although it's more um, alive than that to think it's frozen in that way, but of an experience of all of your senses from the five senses, uh, which includes touch that also includes the internal touch. So the exteroceptive and the interoceptive um, touch that we can have or experience of that sensation. Really, it's all of that all together that can get encoded as a memory. So senses are very much at the center of our memory experience, which I think definitely uh, makes sense. And memory itself is something that we often think of as a, I even said snapshot or some kind of a recording, but really it's, it's none of those things. Anytime we remember something, it's a reconstructive process and even just constantly our, our memories are changing. And it's a far cry from what even not that long ago people thought was an explanation of memory as some kind of a filing cabinet. So people uh, will sometimes still think um, that the way we remember is you say, okay, remember this time, you know, three weeks ago, this happened. And it's as if we go into our brain, find the file of three weeks ago, pull it out, and then the whole memory of that experience is there. But this is not what is happening in our brains, and this is not at all explain memory. There is no filing cabinet, and there is no sense that we have this true um, memory of what happened that we could describe and say is definitely the truth, that I know what happened because I have it in a memory. So it's not a recording. Uh, I've heard even people say in different types of less now, but reading it in books even of their idea of memory that everything you've ever experienced is recorded and you can access it and bring it out. So 
from your fifth birthday, you could, if you thought hard enough or through hypnosis or some process, get to that memory and bring it out faithfully and remember exactly what happened and experience, and it would be very true. And this is not at all our understanding of how memory works now. It is not something that you can just necessarily conjure up in that way or that is hidden and can faithfully express something that happened however long ago, even more recently than that. One thing that this reminds me of is experience of family therapy and also couples therapy, where if I'm working with a couple and they're going to tell me about an argument they had last week. And so really, I always know I'm going to have to let them both share the story of this argument. And I even tell them it's not because either one of them is lying or I think they're intentionally lying, but our experiences and our memory of the events will be different without trying just because we are two different people. And even the way I said it, experience because of how you experienced it, where the senses come into play, it's going to affect how you remember what happened. And sometimes it's quite fascinating. Someone will share the story. This happened and this happened. I said this, she said this. And all that and the other person's like, what are you talking about? And then they'll say the same story and they'll say, no, you did this first, then I did that. And so it can be also be hard, you know, sometimes we think, well, what really happened? And without having a video tape of the argument, we won't know for sure. We really are left a lot of times with the experiences being what we have to deal with and work with. And hopefully there's some level of overlap of the experiences, but it does point to this notion that even for recent events, memory is not this thing that you can just conjure up a faithful reproduction of exactly what happened. Really what you're doing is you're trying to bring up or see if what can be triggered is your experience of it, but then also throughout time, by bringing it up for sure, we know that changes the memory. But even as you change and evolve and as time goes on, we know that your memory of experiences is going to change. So we have to remove this notion that we have this file cabinet or file cabinet of files or even just file cabinet of recordings that we can bring them out and see and experience the whole thing again. That's not how things work when it comes to our memory. I actually think the way that we can try to understand memory, yes, we remember everything that happened, but not in the sense that we can bring back these accounts that perfectly reflect what happened, but that because of how our brains and bodies work, we know that what we experience influences how our brain develops, influences what we expect to experience, our brains as a predicting machine. So as a result, yes, you in a way remember because you encode all of these experiences that now can affect your future experiences, but that's very different from meaning that you can bring back a memory and describe exactly what happened as long as you're able to access that file in some way. So I'm going to continue discussion after the break on A Sense of Self by Veronica O'Keen. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book, A Sense of Self by Veronica O'Keen. And I was talking about the fidelity of memory or the truth or reliability of memory. And there's so much evidence showing that 
it is not as reliable as we might think. Now, of course, even having this conversation, we can say it's amazing what we can remember still or what we're able to do with memory. But when we think of it as this faithful tape recorder, that's where we can lose sight of really the truth about memory and speaking about truth about memory. There was a whole chapter she had about true and false memories, and she has false in quotes, because as she puts it, really, we can think that all memories, in a sense, are false to a degree, um, in the sense that no memories are exactly going to be true. We might think that they are, or we think that there's really true ones and completely fake ones, but we have to have that recognition that all of our memories, as much as they might seem very real, they are in some sense a recreation or more of our experience than something that we can say is completely a faithful representation. So I thought it was interesting that perspective of recognizing that about memory, that it isn't something that is going to be blanketly true or false, but that all of our experiences in a way and all the things we remember um, are in some ways false to a degree because it's something that is experienced in our way but then also evolves over time as well and related to that as i mentioned she shares some case studies in her over 30 years work of as a psychiatrist with different patients and there's a case of edith who we can be assured it's not her actual name but edith is experiencing postpartum psychosis So this is when a mother, after giving birth, experiences psychotic symptoms, hallucinations or delusions or and or delusions. And it's actually more common than you might think. I heard her speaking and I I believe this, this the statistic she gave was one in 200 live births can result in postpartum psychosis, which is more than I realized. I maybe had seen that number before, but it didn't really strike me like it did when I heard her speaking about it, because as I heard her describe oftentimes and very um, naturally, and it would be that she's good, mothers, as, as all of us in different conditions that we're in, we're told of all sorts of risks. This can happen. This can happen. And oftentimes we're told of risks that are probably less than a one in 200 chance as a possible complication or something we have to think about or be concerned about can develop. But I think postpartum psychosis, because we do have this huge stigma when it comes to psychosis of having a hallucination or delusion, let's say hearing voices that are not part of the shared reality or feeling something or smelling something that is not part of shared reality or having a belief that, um, you know, you're experiencing something that is very much not real, like the FBI is after you or something like that. Uh, We have such a stigma that I think people are afraid to, first of all, discuss it if they've been through it, um, but also just for to talk about it, even I think for professionals to to bring it up that this could happen to you because we think that, you know, it's something so bad to have and, and to suggest that someone might experience it can make them seem like we're saying you might be susceptible to something. So I don't know if that's exactly what's going on, but I do think there are 
these types of reasons because of the stigma attached to mental illness in general, but especially more what we consider severe mental illness and experiences of mental illness, such as psychosis, that we tend to avoid talking about it. So one in 200 is not so rare, and it's probably from a host of factors, including the rush of different types of hormones that the new mother will experience from the pregnancy and then also birth and post-birth that contribute to what is going on because Edith in this case did not have any kind of really significant or any um, mental illness to to speak of before this uh, experience. So this is a, an important story in the sense that it shows, as I'll demonstrate, something that really struck uh, Dr. O'Keene when it came to memory and our experience of memory. And so Edith had what, what is called Capgras syndrome, um, which is this sense that your baby is an imposter. So this is not my baby, the baby that you um, now have. So it's this like idea of the changeling that they've switched your baby at birth. And so she didn't believe that her baby was hers. And I think even she thought she smelled in a certain way, which is likely another hallucination. You can have olfactory uh, hallucinations as well, meaning that you smell something that is not there. I remember when I was uh, doing an internship at a psychiatric hospital, my heart would break that there was this one man who he thought he smelled very bad. He, he didn't actually, but he thought he had this really putrid odor that he was smelling. And when he would talk during um, the group therapy, he would actually apologize to um, everyone and to the staff that I'm sorry that I'm doing this, but he in fact did not have an odor, but he had this olfactory hallucination that made him think he was giving off this very, very uh, bad smell. And so uh, here, Edith, in this case of Dr. O'Keen that she shares, thought her baby was an imposter. And so they finally take her to the hospital because of her postpartum psychosis. And on the way to the hospital, she sees a, they pass by a cemetery and she sees a small gravestone uh, or a grave that is kind of tilted a little bit. And that small gravestone, um, she looks at and because there's a little bit of an opening or a movement in her, what looks like it's moved, she says, oh, they must have put my baby there. My real baby is there in that gravestone. And th I now have this imposter baby. And it was, of course, a very terrifying experience. So now she goes in the hospital and after time of taking some antipsychotic medications, her postpartum psychosis re relieves or slowly goes away. And now she's leaving the hospital. But now on one of her, or she leaves and goes home on one of her visits to see the doctor again on a, on a follow-up, she sees the gravestone again, the small gravestone that she initially thought that's where they've buried my actual baby. And she has this experience um, that, of course, is going to be hard to describe, that she sees it again and feels again what she felt then. But it's a bit complicated because for a moment she does think maybe her baby is there. But when she sees the doctor and she brings this up, the doctor says, well, you know, you know, that was your hallucination. It's not real that your baby was switched and, and you know, was buried there. And she says, yes, I know that, but the memory is real. And this really struck Dr. O'Keene, and I think it's really a poignant understanding that, of course, 
the we know that it's not based on fact, but you can imagine she experienced it as real in that moment. And imagine the terror of thinking your baby has been taken from you, switched, killed, and now is in a gravestone in the cemetery and you've seen it. That, of course, is going to be a, as a type of traumatic experience of thinking that, experiencing that. And so seeing the gravestone again, as memory works, it triggered that experience again. And so it brought back that whole sensation. And so Dr. O'Keen says that this was a really interesting um, and for her mind-blowing or mind-opening type of experience of seeing and understanding memory in a different way. So I thought that was quite fascinating, a very one of the interesting vignettes uh, that Dr. O'Keen shares in this book. Um, and so she also talks about stress. And so stress is something that when I even just say the word, we think of something very negative. Oh, stress. I'm stressed. And of course, having too much stress is very bad and does have negative effects on us, both mentally and physically. But what stress really is, is actually something quite good in moderate amounts in the sense that it relates to our level of arousal. So like many things that we see in a biological experience of life, too little of something is bad and too much of it is bad, but we need a moderate or balanced amount. And stress is the same thing, especially when it comes to things like encoding or having memory in the sense that you have to be at a certain level of arousal or alertness to have the possibility of experiencing something to remember it. So this reminds me of when you meet someone. And for a lot of people who say they're bad with names, what's really happening is when they meet someone, they're hyper aroused in the sense that they're too anxious. So the brain cannot really process what it's taking in. We can say maybe it didn't fully experience what's happening in that moment. So you never fully took in that name. So we would say this is on the too much arousal, but probably not when you're meeting someone, but in other experiences, you're not paying enough attention. You're under aroused, so to speak. There's not enough stress. And so as a result, you won't even take in that information either in a different way. You're not paying enough attention, we can say. So it was interesting that she does express this concept of stress, not thinking of it as just a bad thing. Of course, it can be when it's too much, and that's what we discuss a lot, and there's a lot of research on that, but that this doesn't necessarily mean that stress is bad. It means that when it's it's too much, it's not good. There's also a lot of discussion the theme throughout the book, or a theme, I should say, which is true of anything really looking at neuroscience, is that the brain is plastic throughout life. And there's changes that take place in the brain that will, uh, or our experiences that affect um, our brains and how they uh, we experience, experience life and experience different things. And so she talks about starlings, these birds, and how um, for the males, when it comes time for spring, there's testosterone get, that gets released in their brain to make the song bird, which really isn't a part of the brain, their brain, but a songbird cortex get bigger because then they need to sing to, in a way, impress the female starlings to then mate and then, you know, reproduce. And so as a result, we see this change in their brain that seems to be 
triggered by the sun, which when the, the seasons are changing, prepares them for this. We actually see a change in the size of the cortex or that part of their cortex that relates to singing so that they can sing a longer song because the longer the song they can sing, the more that is attractive to um, the starling. So it's kind of interesting showing an example from the animal kingdom, but that we can see similar things happen in our brain in different ways, maybe not as specific as we see there. Um, but, but I thought that was quite interesting. And then going back to this title of the book, A Sense of Self, again, that's the U.S. title, uh, we do have this tendency not just to have memories, but we do make a story where we self-narrativize this story of ourself. We make a, a cohesive story that makes sense to us, and this is part of our sense of self, or it can be. And so I think it's interesting because we do make uh, the self-narrative of our life and ourselves, which might be needed to some degree, but also it can limit us because we tend to think, well, I'm not the kind of person that does this, or I'm not this type of a person because of what we've experienced, but also probably because we want to be seen and we want to feel that I am a this kind of person and not that kind of person. And sometimes this might actually limit our experiences or limit what we do, the behaviors that we do. So this reminds me of Jung's concept of the shadow, where because of things you experience in childhood for different reasons, you might disown parts of yourself. So for example, uh, there was a lot of anger in your home and it really looked bad and you had bad experiences because of it. And you didn't want to be like your parents that were so angry. So you disown your angry part of yourself or your anger, which can be and is a very healthy part of your psyche, and you've put it away. And so you tell yourself, I'm not a person that gets mad. I don't never get angry. And so as a result, you go through life with this narrative that you're telling yourself, but it might actually prevent you from having healthy expressions of anger for recognizing that, let's say, your boundaries have been violated or someone is doing something you don't like. And because of this story that you have of yourself of not being an angry person, you actually won't express that anger and will maybe tell yourself you're okay, but almost definitely you are feeling something inside that you are not having access to or connecting with. So our self narration of our life, it does make sense. We tend to do that to make some sort of sense of our lives, but we have to be aware of there can be some costs when I think it's too uh, fossilized. It becomes too uh, inflexible. And we want to have a flexibility in that to recognize I have been these things, but as Walt Whitman says, I contain multitudes. You can be many different things and many different types of people. And so I think it's important to to be aware of that itself, uh, itself, that yes, a sense of self can be important and make sense, but we can at times get ourselves in trouble by having too fixed uh, an understanding of our self as someone who only is this and is not these things, when we really were likely much more than a story that we even are making up about our, ourselves about ourselves. So this book I found incredibly fascinating, brings up lots of different um, concepts related to memory. First, some of the new neuroscience and memory that shows the role of different parts of the brain, like the hippocampus and the amygdala, uh, when it comes to our, our experiences and our memory. Um, but I really enjoyed also the writing style. 
uh, of Veronica O'Keene. So highly recommend this book, A Sense of Self, Memory, the Brain, and Who We Are by Veronica O'Keene. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So I was discussing the book tonight, A Sense of Self by Veronica O'Keene, which I found uh, really interesting looking at memory and how we even make memories and how we can understand that experience of memories. And I wanted to share something, an experience I had while reading the book, which relates to some of the concepts she brought up or um, some ideas she brought up about how, as I mentioned earlier, we stigmatize mental illness so severely in in all forms, but especially when it comes to the more severe experiences of psychosis, when someone hears voices or someone, um, you know, thinks they saw something that wasn't there, hallucinations or delusions. They think something like Capgras syndrome, where they imagine their baby was switched at birth. And we are so judgmental of these people and we use words like crazy and psycho and various different words to use them and we very much dehumanize them we see them as not human as less than and throughout your life it's very possible you will experience a a full-blown psychosis I, i shouldn't say very likely but a few percent of the population likely will but even still we all have had beliefs even um i would challenge you to really look at your life and not see even probably now you have some but some thoughts that we probably could say border on delusion at least if not our full-blown delusion i can look at my own life and sometimes remember feelings i had in a moment that probably if really looked at closely would be delusional and i'm going to share an experience i had actually while reading this book but i used to think about this when I was at the psychiatric hospital doing that internship I did in grad school. And I'm very grateful that I did it because I got to see on a regular basis individuals who are experiencing the more severe of mental illnesses. And as as is often the case when you are exposed to some type of a new, what's new to you, population or group of people whatever it might be, at the beginning, you don't really see much. Everything kind of looks just like the same or everyone is just kind of, you know, severely mentally ill in this case. I had a similar experience when I went to um, Costa Rica in a school for deaf children and I I had the opportunity to volunteer there for three weeks. Um, I remember the first days I was there, all I could see really was that these children they were all deaf children i I really could only see that and that if you you know that disability or that aspect of them was really all i could see and they all seemed the same but after being there for a few days i got to see them more for who they were oh this is a kid who likes to be a little bit sneaky and you know jokes around this was the one that's a little more quiet and wants me to come maybe give her a little bit of more direct attention this one really likes to play oh this child likes to show me how he can count and he would show me with his fingers how he can count in sign language so fast up to high numbers which was a new experience for me but made sense kids do this all the time you know you'll see a young child and say you know i can count to 100 and then they start counting because sometimes whether you want them to or not and so it was the, the same experiences. And so over time, 
they were obviously humanized and they were no longer defined by that. And so similarly, I remember when I first went into the psychiatric hospital and some of the first few uh, experiences I had were pretty intense. And so I couldn't see much, but over time, and people would change over time in a psychiatric hospital. Some people are staying there for a longer period, some for just three days or so. Um, but even so, the longer ones, they're usually not there that long. So you're seeing new people. We did have some people that did come back in the course of my year several times. But they become much more human. They're no longer just someone experiencing something, uh, a really severe type of a thing. And you see that human side. And back then, what I understood about schizophrenia was that dopamine, this neurotransmitter, was really the culprit in, in causing schizophrenia. Of course, it's even then it wasn't that it was that was it, but that was considered the main thing. And so I would imagine, though, in my head that although sometimes people can think this person going through schizophrenia is so different from me, it's probably microscopic amounts of this neurotransmitter that are creating the difference between my experience and their experience. And so it's not that we're so different. It could again be another indication of how grateful we can be for the experiences we have, the various types of health you experience, that for things to all go well, actually a lot is going on. It's not that simple and very easily things could be very different, even life and death is very fragile and then different experiences of health are different from your physical to your your mental health now our understanding of schizophrenia is that it's much more complex than just this neurotransmitter that might be in abundance uh, dopamine that it relates different types of brain regions and like our understanding of most both both things that we do productively and also illnesses it's much more about the connections and the interconnectivity between different parts of the brain and aspects of the brain. But even still, um, you definitely couldn't see it with the bare eye looking at the brains yourself. But even with microscopes and details that we look at, we see that it's not so different. So it is this humbling understanding that although you might think, and I think a lot of people think, oh, I could never you know, hallucinate or I would never be delusional. You should know that, first of all, you can, and different experiences could even induce that, but also that you're not that far away from someone who does. And another thing we're recognizing and understanding more in our understanding of something like hallucinations and the experience of schizophrenia is that it might be related to sensory experiences that are hard to integrate or understand. Um, even I remember, I forgot which book it was, was expressing this theory and some research behind how it could be that they oftentimes individuals who are dealing with schizophrenia have a hard time recognizing that something is coming from within them. So you can imagine if you did hear a voice and you have to remember they are hearing a voice. It's not just when we say, oh, well, they're it's not there. So they're not hearing it. Their experience is of hearing it and you can't identify where it's coming from. You might think, well, maybe it's those two people over there throwing their voice to me or, you know, they implanted a chip in my head or someone is talking to me or God is talking to me or the devil is talking to me. You could understand that if you have a sensory experience that you can't understand or explain where it's coming from, you will make some understanding of it that can make sense of it. 
I remember seeing the that there's research showing that yourself you can't most people cannot tickle themselves if you try to tickle yourself you you can't do it but then if someone else does the same touching it could tickle you and part of the understanding is that because you can feel what your body is doing or you can sense that this is my body is about to do this and I know what it's going to feel like so when you put your I'm doing it right now putting my hand one hand on my forearm I'm expecting what that's going to feel like I counteract that I don't think it's coming from somewhere else but an individual with schizophrenia won't recognize that so they actually can tickle themselves and they will laugh because they they don't have that same understanding where there's something that quite isn't being relayed in the brain of understanding that this is coming from within or these touches uh, I can predict them or know what's going to happen there so we can see that it rather than being something of just dopamine or something with the whole brain having an issue it could be that a big part of explaining or understanding hallucinations and delusions but hallucinations in particular might be about sensory integration and how that is understood and again it can make sense to me if i heard voices and i could understand where they were coming from i'd have to have some explanation and i kept hearing them and oftentimes very distressing voices telling you mean things or horrible things um i remember that some of the voices that uh, patients of the hospital shared what they were saying was so sad to you know hear someone like, i hate you or really nasty things even worse than that over and over again uh, just imagine what that experience is like and i remember one of my supervisors one of the ways he talked about how you can um, if you're talking to someone who has is having a hallucination let's say they see you know there's this alien there behind you i remember he said um you know rather than saying oh it's not there what are you talking about you you can tell them you know, I don't see the alien, but I do believe that you do. So in a way, you're not invalidating their experience, but you're not lying and saying, I see it also. But you're saying, I could imagine you're seeing it, and you might even say, I can imagine that's really scary. Imagine if you thought there was some monster or alien uh, in the corner, like what maybe a child goes through as well. They really think there's a monster in the closet or under their bed. So of course, it's, it's terrifying. Um, but I wanted to share my experience, which... It's not exactly on the realm of seeing monsters, but it just gave me a glimpse and it's kind of ironic. So I just have a few minutes left, so let me try to get through this. But I was reading the book and this was probably Saturday or Sunday. And I came across these two sentences on page 159. The experiences and behaviors typical of schizophrenia generally emerge during adolescence and early adulthood. An adolescent does not wake up with schizophrenia. It develops over years. And so I read it, and then what I later understood is that four pages later, on page 163, those same two sentences appear almost in the exact same part of the page. Now, was it, usually you would write it slightly differently in a book, so was there, I don't know, maybe she intended it to be that way, maybe it was kind of a mistake that wasn't caught to have these two sentences appear identically four pages apart in this way without changing any of the wording. Either way... When I read that, and again, it's interesting because it's about the experiences and behaviors typical of schizophrenia, I had this really bizarre experience because when I read it the second time, four pages later, just several minutes later, I had this odd moment of, wait, didn't I read this before? And I was really confused of like, why does this, why does this seem familiar? But I think I read it, but I'm not on, I'm on a different page. And for maybe 10, 15 seconds before I went back and found it, I had this really bizarre experience of like, wait, what's going on? 
And it was so fascinating for me because it was about the experience of, of schizophrenia. And it made me have this realization. I had a resolution. I could go back four pages and see that I'd read those exact pages. And it was almost in the same part of the page. So I think that also triggered something of like, I almost saw this exact thing before. Um, but if I couldn't resolve it and it was something maybe more significant or more personal, how would have I have felt about that? I likely would have had a very, even more bizarre experience. So it, it was really strange for me, those few seconds, but I did feel something and, you know, going from this book, it created this memory that it's sensory experience. I have a memory of what that is. And I try to bring it back right now as I think about it, but it was this very bizarre feeling of is something going on. And so one can imagine that if you had, let's say many experiences like that, if I had that come up many times, what would I try to understand? I would maybe think someone's trying to send me a message or maybe I would think, oh, I'm writing this book. They're taking the the thoughts away from me because, you know, I thought of this sentence once before I've experienced it. So this person is stealing my thoughts, which is a hallucination or a delusion that people can experience. And so maybe I would think someone is stealing my thoughts and putting them into the book or, or in different ways. And so it was a, a very quick experience, but in a way it was, I think, good for me to remember and realize sometimes we think we are so far away. You know, we think of I'm so sane and then there's these crazy, insane people and there's this wide gulf between you and this them. But it's realizing that really we're teetering in some ways between that all the time that there our way of understanding the world is much more fragile than you might think it is and your notion of your um infallible sanity and also your uh you know your sanity that cannot be infected by anything or affected by anything is definitely not the truth and it's much more fragile than you might think of and I say this not to scare you, to, to make you think that if you're listening right now, you're close to a psychotic break or it's going to happen to you. It does happen to individuals, of course, but it's to remind you that if you are judging those who go through these things, that you are really overestimating how good and strong you are and definitely underestimating them and what they are and who they are. And so on a both accounts, you are mistaken. And so you might not have an experience like that, but if you really look through your life, you likely will see you've had experiences where you did have some type of belief that could border on a delusion, or you did think you heard or saw something that you very clearly later saw was not that. And you can understand, imagine if you didn't have that resolution, what that experience would be like, where it would send you in your thinking and feeling, and hopefully it will give you more empathy for individuals who experience serious mental illnesses and have hallucinations and delusions and recognize they are not so different from you. It's not really a them. They are part of all of us. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Talakwi. Have a wonderful night. <laughs>